to episode 11 of The Route, a glorified sports business coffee chat that has a new guest every episode as they share their experience and route in sports. I'm Chris Fernesmento and uh, let's get started. On today's episode, we have a action-packed interview, so I won't go through the uh, usual process of, you know, kind of breaking down and telling you to look out for certain aspects as, you know, there's a ton of recording. I usually try to keep all the recordings in the same uh, time range, but there's so many great stories and experiences that were shared. I decided to, you know, share everything with you guys, and I hope you guys enjoy it. So the only other thing that I'll say before the um, episode begins is if you want to connect with today's guest, um, a previous guest, or even myself, uh, connect with me via social media. So follow me at Nesmento Marketing on Instagram or Twitter. So N-A-S-C-I. M-E-N-T-O-M-K-T-G. That will also be in the episode notes. I'll gladly uh, create that warm that warm lead for you guys to, to make a connection. But other than that, I think let's just get right into the episode. Hope you enjoy. I'd now like to welcome national Emmy-winning digital social media reporter, one of the original Seven Vegas Golden Knights employees, and current senior specialist of social marketing at DraftKings. Dan Maraza, welcome to The Route. How are you? Good. Thank. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on and uh, doing great. How about yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Crazy times, but yeah, everything's good. Yeah, I, I, as I've said to people, I, someday there's going to be a movie about this month. Someday. Oh, yeah. someday. Oh, I don't I know who's going to play me, but I keep trying <laughs> to remind myself when I'm on social, on my personal channel, that, man, I want to be on the right side of history with things. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how the movie goes in a few years. <laughs> yeah for sure i never even thought of that but uh maybe just to start do you mind maybe giving a little background about yourself where'd you start and they kind of walk us through your route yeah absolutely so yeah so i'm originally from a town called nutley new jersey this is it's about 10 miles outside of new york uh i am 32 years old if you ever want to never forget my birthday the hockey comparison because i'm a hockey guy is I was born the same day as Vladimir Sabatka. That one, that one will be stuck in your head. Is uh, so, yeah. And I, and I guess you could officially say now I've been in the industry half of my life. I started as an intern when I was sixteen, so sixteen out of thirty-two now. So anyway, when I started out, social media wasn't even a thing yet at that point. I think that was still when Mark Zuckerberg was still in his dorm room and was still kind of figuring out what Facebook was going to be. So, growing up. As a like, hockey was always my sport that I like that I knew the most about, and the way I like to say it sometimes is, like, I'm not what I kind of call a naturally talented person in lots of different ways. I think I was always good at telling stories about sports and especially hockey. So at a young age, I wanted to be a sports writer and everything that that entailed. When I was probably in high school, I started, you know, just like after games, writing my own stuff that nobody really even saw, but I would just kind of do it myself. So the thing that got me started in the industry itself was Stan Fischler, who's a legend of hockey. He, uh, I think his first job in hockey, I think it was in like 1951 or something like that. And for those of you who are less familiar with him, he's uh, TV, he's been for the Devils, the Rangers, the Islanders. He's the Maven in New York. He's also authored over 100 books about hockey too. So I got hired as an intern with him right at the end of my junior year in high school. Uh, the way I hooked up there was kind of interesting is I was actually on 
NewYorkIslanders.com the day after the Lightning knocked them out of the playoffs in 2004. That was the year the Lightning eventually won the Stanley Cup. And there was an ad on the Islanders website that Stan needed interns. And even though I was still in high school, I was like, oh, I'll take a shot. So I sent like my stuff in. I was I probably the most unprofessional email in the history of email addresses for a job applicant. My email address was metsisles6 at aol.com. Times have changed. Times have changed a little bit, and uh, and I so he answered. I was shocked that he actually answered, but he uh, he answered every applicant on the same email, and you could see everybody's email address. And there were over ninety applicants, and I'm like, oh man, I'm oh Christ, I'm not, I, I don't have a shot here. But every like the prompts kept being like follow up in a couple of weeks. So like okay, I just kept following up for every every couple of weeks. So finally, about three months later, of like. You know, well, he exchanged maybe four or five messages within those three months. He invited me in to interview in his office, uh, office slash apartment office in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, my dad drove me in and uh, I got in there and I really didn't know what to expect. Uh, I'm used to, like, I'd never been in an office before. I hadn't even really had a summer job of any kind at that point. So I go in, probably way overdressed, and Stan comes out. I think he had gym shorts and a white t-shirt on, I think. And I was like, man, this is not what I expected. So go in his office and he sits me down. His The interview room is also his living room. And he has a newsletter called The Fish Little Report. Uh, it's still being produced and it had probably has been produced probably since the 80s. And uh, he gives me the newsletter and says he's going to leave the room for like you know, five, 10 minutes. And when he comes back, he wants to know what I could offer them. I'm like, no pressure, right? For like a, a high school kid. So anyway, I'm like, <laughs> I'm looking at the newsletter and I'll never forget the thing that I saw was it was since it was right after the playoffs in 2004, it was talking about the Maple, something about the Maple Leafs not winning that year. They got knocked out by Philadelphia in the second round that year, uh, the Jeremy Roenick overtime goal. And it, the line was, it's been 27 years since the Maple Leafs have won the Stanley Cup, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wait, it's 37 years, not 27 years. And, uh, so Stan comes back and he goes, so what can you do? And I couldn't think of anything to answer. So I said, I can guarantee this never happens again. I think that was my line. I mean, I don't know if I would be that bold now in my 30s, but like, I guess like uh, I was precocious. I didn't know better. He actually hired me on the spot. He asked me if I could start immediately. Uh, my dad was so bad with cell phones back then uh, that he, like, I guess didn't see his text. So I think he circled the block for about two hours as I stayed and, and kind of learned the ropes at the beginning. <laughs> I stayed with Stan off and on for five years, off and on through uh, when I graduated college, where I went to Ithaca College. So I'd go to college and then I'd come back over the summer and then I would be with Stan. And it's been a great relationship. I mean, I think the last time I talked to him was about two hours ago. Uh, he lives in Israel now. But tweeted me and we were kind of going on about something and great guy great influence on me so from that sense i was probably very young as far as starting in the industry the other thing and i that i always say to a lot of people is it's an incredibly difficult industry to break into i think that i knew that getting in but i don't think i really had any idea how difficult it really was i think i probably have a couple records i mean these are the records that I think I set out to have. I am probably very close to having the most unpaid days in the history of the industry. Uh, so I started like that summer of 2004. I didn't get paid for working in the industry until 2013. 
Wow. That's uh, a long gap. Uh, within that, uh, starting in 2014, uh, as you see in a lot of media situations, you have contract jobs, uh, even though they're full-time benefited jobs, but they're on contracts and they have expiration dates on them and maybe you stay, maybe you don't, maybe the job exists, maybe it doesn't. And for the next two and a half years, I did that. Uh, like on different contracts and freelancing. And it wasn't until I got to the Vegas Golden Knights that I had a job that didn't have an end date on it. And that was 12 years after I started. I like to joke that, man, if only the NHL had expanded 10 years ago, this would have, uh, this would have been, this would have been great. I mean, I think leaving Las Vegas a couple years ago, also, I uh, almost looked at it as the way expansion's always been looked at is that players with different teams that maybe didn't always get opportunities that maybe they were capable and qualified of doing the same way the Golden Knights did on the ice and just shocking the hockey world with what they were able to accomplish. I think there was definitely some element of that on the business side also of some folks that maybe hadn't gotten chances before uh, that scale. So for me, that was a, it was obviously a, a massive, a massive opportunity, which I'll kind of get into a bit later, how I, how I kind of, ended up there so to speak but uh yeah so that was how i got like my first like boom type of position that way it like you mentioned at the top of the show like national emmy winning i had actually won an emmy before i got a permanent job that's not the order that things usually go in the industry oh. it's not it's really not like especially when you're living in your parents basement and you have no money and they don't have any money and your Emmy is sitting on a crate in the corner with dust on it. And you're like, man, this is like, I, I know I'm qualified. Like, look, like, look. But uh, a lot of times it's not even just a qualification issue. It's a scarcity issue. There's just not a lot of jobs in this in this industry. And fortunately, uh, an expansion team opened jobs because there had to be. And that really uh, helped me out. The way I would say that within that, and that journey has gone that I've kind of evolved is, is now at DraftKings, I will pretty much predominantly in social media, which as I mentioned, wasn't even a thing when I started. So for me, I think it was always a little bit of wanting to be a sports writer. Then as I kind of went, getting unpaid internships or contract jobs, almost taking what was available just to stay in hockey. And what that ended up doing for me was giving me a pretty well-rounded background that exposed me to social for the first time. It exposed me to web production and behind the scenes stuff. It exposed me to public relations, just lots of different things that it was able to get me in just as I was kind of scrambling to, you know, stay afloat. And lo and behold, that ended up really being the thing that uh, helped land me the job and that we were such a start up. I mean, when I got there, it wasn't even the Vegas golden nights yet. It was just like Vegas hockey. Uh, we didn't have a, yeah. We didn't have players. We didn't have a logo. We didn't have a general manager. We had, uh, I think I was the only employee that wasn't ticket sales, I think. And uh, we had an office that was about 12 by 10 uh, in an industrial park next to an Ikea. So that was all we had. So they knew that it was going to be a start up and they needed somebody who had done a little bit of everything that way to kind of get things launched. And then eventually as staff comes in, different people will specialize in different areas. And the fact that I had done so many different things was kind of one of the things that they had told me that kind of attracted them to me. The thing that was kind of, I guess, coincidental of how that changed my career was, is at the time I would have been probably a journalist first and foremost, probably web production second and probably social food. And then the Golden Knights happened and a lot of the work that we did as a group and a lot of that being myself on social really uh, got a lot of, a 
a lot of attention and developed a little bit of a cult following there for a while. And I think sometimes people forget that I've ever done anything but social because they associate me so closely sometimes with that, which I always want to remind them that, you know, I used to write for Sports Illustrated too. I wasn't always just writing poems on, on, on Peru hats. But, uh, you know, what they say is like, as long as the pain you and people remember you, I guess, like, you know, don't get, don't get too picky. But yeah, that was the wild journey of how that came. And then when, uh, DraftKings, the opportunity came. It was really something that I wanted to do. Where it was something that I had always done hockey, but knowing eventually that sometimes in the industry, it could be the industry could be can be an echo chamber sometimes, where it's uh, a lot of the same ideas being exchanged. And at that time, at the age of thirty, I was like, I want to eventually make a like a a a longer step, like a higher step than where I'm at right now. And for me to do that. I almost need to get out of this eco chamber a little bit and and develop some other aspects of things. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, I've at DraftKings. This was right as the Supreme Court was legalizing, uh, passing the bill to legalize sports betting in the United States, which created an environment where DraftKings has grown tremendously since I've been there. There's been a lot of excitement going on. So uh, I guess the the, uh, the the finale of that long of that long answer I started with is I'm probably the only person ever also who had to leave Las Vegas to get involved in betting. It's not supposed to go. It's supposed to be that you do a hockey team in Boston and you do betting in Las Vegas, but I did it in reverse. And, but you know, but at the end of the day, everything's gone pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite the journey you've been on. And before we get back into your route, do you maybe just mind touching on your Emmy Mm-hmm. again and like how you got that before we go back yeah so it was 100 percent a group effort i think that uh whether i was there or not i think our group probably would have won it anyway i think that was almost like the team was so good it was almost like just don't mess it up is how i like the joke it was at nbc though it was my first contract job which was my first paying job which was a contract job at nbc sports national office based out of stanford connecticut and it was for the build-up uh, to the 2014 Olympics, uh, build-up, and then during the 2014 Olympics. The uh, category that our department won was Outstanding New Approaches to uh, Sports Event Coverage. And at the time, it's funny, just the way things were now, the stuff that we were doing then probably isn't as new now in 2020. But back then, even only six years ago, it was. And it was lots of things with social feeds within online broadcasts, just the way things were being streamed. Yeah, so our department as a whole, uh, our numbers were really good that really uh really good that that went to and uh no we won. And what was funny was when we won, I didn't know going in that like there were Emmys for working in like this. Like I didn't like know that like there was like a category. I wasn't even at NBC anymore at that point. I was actually working at the NHL League office and I got an email on my Gmail and it was like you are nominated for an Emmy. And I'm like, I'm like, delete this scam, right? And and then I started like texting with like some of the people that I worked with who got the same email. And we kind of realized it was on the level. So the Emmys is not like the Emmys that you watch on Hollywood red carpet. It's a it's like sports Emmys. But uh and it was in New York. But the way it actually worked out was uh tickets were i can't remember how much they were to go and i couldn't afford a ticket to go to the emmys because i was not in that spot in the industry at that point so what i actually did was i stayed home with my parents that night and i followed it on 
the Splits Emmys Twitter account as they started to announce the winners. And I had never run a show. I didn't know what was going to happen. I just figured at some point that they would have to tweet all the categories. So I'm sitting in my parents' living room, and I think my mom was doing laundry. I think my dad was in the kitchen. And all of a sudden, I just go, we won. It's like it just came, it just came across on, came across on, on Twitter just like that. I mean, it's a strange way to find out, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, that's the epitome. It's kind of like same way players would say, like if you're on a championship team, it's something that always kind of stays with you. And even though some of those guys from the Olympics that you haven't necessarily seen in a while, we stay in touch and we always have that that bond from that. Absolutely, that's so crazy how things worked out like that. And you kind of touched on how important your internships were to kind of create a foundation for your career. Mm-hmm. Do you mind maybe sharing how you got all those internships? Yeah, that's, a, those that's the million dollar question, isn't it? It's the, it's the million dollar question. Yeah, so for me, uh, the Stan Fisher one I kind of went into. Then I graduated college in 2009 from Ithaca. And I at that time, I knew I wanted to be in the industry, but I think I was a little bit scared of the industry, end of life. And I think I was procrastinating my life. And I, I think also too, after living in central New York, I needed to, I needed to deep thaw. So I wanted, I said, I'll go to grad school. I'll go, I'll go live in Florida. I lived in Boca Raton, Florida, uh, studying creative writing and which was a great experience. But within a few months of me getting there, I'm like, I miss hockey. This is, that's what I want to do. So at the end of the season, I, I, the one thing I did not really have at that point was really any knowledge of like how to find jobs and how to interview and how to like do things like that. So I just started looking for email addresses of people at any level of hockey I could find and just throwing up emails all over the place. And what I found out was probably about 4% of the people even dignified me with an answer. So, uh, I had actually struck out on two things that I had interviewed for. They were both like seasonal grad assistant type jobs. One was in the NHL and one was in the AHL. And I was like, like, I didn't think, I mean, I, I had interned for five years already. I didn't think it was going to be that hard. So the one team that had actually answered me was the Trenton Devils in the ECHL, which was probably about an hour and a half from where my, uh, well, I was living with my parents at the time in New Jersey. And went down there to interview and ECHL is so much smaller than the NHL. There's probably, we only had probably about a dozen employees of the team. And at that level also, and especially social was so new at that point, teams were only on social for about a year at that point, was that the head of public relations was also the broadcaster, was also the web, was also like all of the platforms. And that that formula is relatively common in the minors and has been over the lot for a long time. But a lot of times in that case, the guys who are in those spots are mostly broadcasters who do the other things on the side. So even though it was not a paying gig, it was an opportunity to do social. I'd actually never even operated a personal Twitter account before that. It was the opportunity to write everything on their website. It was the opportunity to do the social, to update their website, and really do a lot of different things that way. So it was a long commute, you know, an hour and a half each way a day, and started doing that for a couple months. And it was great, but I started to like notice right away was that ECHL was great. It was great for foundation, but at that point, I did not necessarily think it was going to give me the context that I was going to need to to break in. I think I was starting to learn at that point that it wasn't as much about qualifications, even though it was, but it really was about having networks and having people that trust you. And I had Stan Fishler that I in my corner, which is great, but 
I didn't really have anybody else in my corner. So I started to poke around and seeing what else was kind of out there. And one of the teams that had actually answered with me was the Charlotte Checkers in the AHL. Those first few in the AHL, they'd been in the ECHL up until that. And they had said, you could go down there. I, I could go down there and I could do it there. And one of the reasons I kind of took it was what I actually did was I went to Charlotte, same type of gig as Trenton was. But I still did most of Trenton's stuff when I was in Charlotte. So I was operating the website, writing stories. I was doing a lot of those social remotely from Charlotte, North Carolina, and doing two at once, which I kind of figured was a really good opportunity to, uh, you know, impress people next summer of what what I was capable of doing. I'll tell you this: live tweeting two game two games at the same time for two different teams is quite a task especially when you're not that experienced <laughs> as I was at that age. So I went to the summer of 2011 and I was like, the real issue here is that I needed an NHL internship. The problem was I was no longer a student and most NHL internships were for credit only. Uh, unpaid internships weren't really a thing as much in the NHL. Now they're not really a thing at all. They were starting to go away at that point. So because I had already graduated, I couldn't, get one and then it was the catch 22 of that was i couldn't get one but then i couldn't get a job because i didn't have one so over the course of the summer of 2011 i started to figure those things out nothing was working out and i took another ahl internship with the adirondack phantoms the philadelphia flyers my early team at the time i think a lot of it was i had so much internship experience that if it was somebody willing to come and do that amount of work and again not being a in a paid employment situation is the opportunity was definitely there to showcase my work, which is, which I'm still incredibly grateful for. But lo and behold, uh, as I had been trying to branch out, one of the teams that I tried to network with was the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, the previous summer. And it turned out their intern was leaving halfway through the season. And like, actually not even, a little bit before halfway through the season, like a third of the way through the season. So I was actually, uh, I, I left Adirondack relatively quickly and I ended up in Tampa Bay uh, for the rest of that year, which, like I said, at that point, having about seven years of internship experience, I was, from a logistical standpoint, I was pretty qualified for any internship role that was out there, maybe even a little bit overqualified, but just uh, waiting for those opportunities. So those, I would say kind of leaving those of, that was probably how those kind of pieced together. It was almost like a snowball rolling downhill. Uh, like as you got more experience, it was able to go that way. I think a lot of it was that I was willing to put myself in a situation, you know, that not everybody's in that situation where they could take an unpaid role. I probably was not in a position where I could do that. Uh, but I found, but my family and I, uh, we found a way to make it work. And, uh, and grinded and grinded and grinded that way. And uh, yeah, so that was how I got those. And like I said, they introduced me to social. They introduced me to Team PR. They introduced me to posting stuff on a website. They Most of the things that I do now are things that I started doing then. I just like to think that I'm a little bit better at doing it now than I was then. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite, definitely something I'm going to try to take away. And hopefully everyone listening will takes away from that. Sure. But kind of building on that, do you mind maybe touching how I noticed you had a few roles with, as a reporter and producer, whether it's with the NBC Olympics, mm -hmm. NHL.com, and other places as well. Mm -hmm. Do I maybe sharing how those positions led to becoming a team member of the Golden Knights? Yeah, the, honestly, this is this is where the question gets good. This is where it gets good. <laughs> okay. and so uh, 
in all seriousness. So anyway, I so I was at NBC through the 2014 Olympics, and one of the things that was part of that role was I was like covering game like the games. So coverage part of our approach was NBC Sports Twitter would tweet follow Dan Moraza for your mm-hmm. Olympic hockey updates. So needless to say, I had I think I had 300 followers before that. I had a lot more, you know, after that. And as I was covering it, I made a reference to Dustin Brown scoring a goal because Dustin Brown is from Ithaca, New York, and that's the town that I went to college in. And I made some kind of Ithaca reference. And I got a bunch of Ithaca alums that I never heard of just started following me right after that. I was like, like, well, that's kind of crazy. So one of the guys was director of web production at the NHL League office. And he followed me on Twitter. I never met him. I didn't really talk to him. But over the next six, seven, eight months after I had left, uh, after I left NBC, I was looking for jobs again. And probably in September of 2014, this guy had tweeted that the NHL League office needed web producers. So I, I DM slid. I mean, my initials are DM, you know, it's natural. <laughs> and so I, I slid into the DMs and especially being local to New York, I mean, they, they needed somebody relatively quickly is I think a week later I was in there and interviewed. And I think about three weeks later I started and it was a contract. Uh, it, was, it was about a 12 month contract. Uh, and the way it ended up working out, I guess, kind of funny, like, I mean, you know, in reverse was that my contract ran out on July 2nd, 2015, my 28th birthday. That's why I will remember when that was. And again, <laughs> I didn't have a full-time job. And at that point, it was a situation where my, not only was my contract not renewed, it was because that was right when NHL.com was branching over to MLBAM, MLB Advanced Media, which is now Disney Streaming. So my department didn't even exist anymore employed at the NHL. So it wasn't like there was even an opportunity to eventually even go back. So for me at that point, having nowhere to go, I mean, I was certainly too old to input at that point. I was certainly too accomplished to input at that point. I had done a lot of things. The opportunity was to freelance, which in the past when I had freelanced, I had probably run around like a chicken with my head cut off, driving tens of thousands of miles to cover stories that 25 people read that, and I wasn't even getting paid for just because like I put it this way. I I was never lacking in enthusiasm, put it that way, even if sometimes sense was not always there. So knowing that I did not want to do that, the way the strategy I developed going into that 2015-16 season was quality over quantity. I can't afford to be running all over the United States and Canada in a Jeep like this, but I'm going to use my wherewithal now now that I'm a little bit more connected to get good stories. So you would say, well, how do you start getting good stories that'll get you in those outlets? So for me, uh, during the Olympics in in 2014, another person that followed me doing that was a guy from Sports Illustrated. And, you know, similar is the guy from the NHL. We stayed in touch. We followed each other. We exchanged exchanged tweets occasionally. So I had the idea in my mind was if I have a good angle of something that I can land that they maybe can't land or aren't even thinking of landing, that it'll kind of almost force their hand a little bit to maybe give me a shot to do this one time for them. Uh, the way I was kind of looking at it was they're not going to credential me to go cover and write a story about the New York Rangers power play because they could get somebody on staff to do that. Anyway, the the story that I had, I had a story in mind that I wanted to do. And the reason this, this was a story that I wanted to do was I had stumbled across a blog that was 
his personal blog. And some of you might remember uh, Mike Danton, who played in the NHL. He played for the New Jersey Devils and the St. Louis Blues. Uh, his career ended in 2004 when he uh, he went to uh, prison. And uh, when he was in prison, he uh, got a college he got, got a college degree. He was, and what I had found out on this blog was he was out of prison. He was a father. He was playing in some not the top rung leagues, but he was playing in Europe and I found his personal blog and I thought it was a very, it was very compelling to me. So he had really not done any interviews. I think he had done one TV one when he had gotten out of prison, but I was like the things that I was reading in his blog, trust me, nobody had covered this in the mainstream media. And the reason that story had always stuck out to me a little bit too was the day that I started my first day as an intern all those years before was actually the day that he originally had gotten arrested. So that was what was going on in the news cycle. So like when you think of your first day, that was like one of the things that I always thought of. So I guess the million dollar question is then how do you find him when you don't have any contacts per se? And he was living in Poland, you know? And so what ended up happening was... Uh, like I said, it's a great story is a couple of years before, like this is backtracking, but I guess going forward, when I was leaving the lightning, one of the things that I had wanted to do and volunteered to do was I wanted to do something that would make me stand out. And like I said, I was never lacking for enthusiasm, even though sometimes I didn't always have common sense. And I saw that the lightning that year were probably not going to be a playoff team, even though Stamkos scored 60 goals that year. So it's pretty memorable from that aspect is that uh, I saw that like probably by January, February, that the chances of them making the playoffs that year were relatively slim. And originally I was supposed to be there until June. And obviously if the season ends in April, there's not going to be that much to do between April and June. But at the time, their AHL team was fantastic in Norfolk, Virginia. And I had been writing some stories about the Norfolk Admirals for TampaBayLightning.com. So what I had actually volunteered for the Lightning to do was I'll leave in April. My folks live in New Jersey. Most of the AHL Eastern conferences, you know, Westville and Manchester and Binghamton and Syracuse, places that are within a couple hours. And I'll drive around myself and cover the Norfolk Admirals playoff run for TampaBayLightning.com as long as they go. And I figured at that point, yeah, maybe they'll go around, you know, maybe they'll, maybe they'll win around and, uh, and I'll get, and I'll get maybe 10 good stories out of this. Lo and behold, when we decided I was going to do this, like probably in February, they stopped losing games. They won the next 28. I mean, they won 28 games in a row to finish the season. It was the longest winning streak at any level in the history of pro hockey. I mean, John Kubel is the coach and, Andre Palat was on the team, Tyler Johnson, Radko Gudis, Alex Kalor, and a lot of the guys that have helped make the Lightning as good as they've been over the last uh, number of years. And then in the playoffs, we only we they they only lost three games in the entire playoffs. They went fifteen and three and won the Calder Cup. So I was actually driving around for like two months. It was like seven thousand miles. Like that's why I said sometimes I have enthusiasm, but not always common sense. So the final round was in Toronto uh, against the Marlies and. Uh, we won at they see there you go again. They won at Rico Coliseum on a Saturday afternoon, and I had been trying to network with anybody and everybody I could. And there was somebody that was a media person in Toronto who was about my age trying to break in, and we had networked, you know, just networked and stayed in touch. And when I we had fallen out of touch, and then when I was at NBC, we kind of got in touch a little bit again, and you know, very similar stages in our careers. And then after the Olympics, she had 
pinged me just coincidentally like the day that I decided that I'm going to try to get this Mike Danton story for uh, Sports Illustrated. And she's like, so what are you going to do now that the Olympics are over? So I said to her, like, do you remember that guy, Mike Danton? He hasn't played in like 10 years. I don't know if you even remember him, but I'm going to try to like do that story. I think I get it in Sports Illustrated. And uh, I'm going to, it's like, it was a Saturday morning. I was like, I'm going to wait till Monday uh, to try to figure out how to find him. And I'm going to take it from there. So she goes to me, Mike, I know him. I'll get him for you right now. What are the chances of that? 30 <laughs> seconds later, we wrote a three-way Facebook message on uh, a private Facebook message, and he agreed to do it before I even had Sports Illustrated on board. And uh, needless to say, Sports Illustrated got on board once we had what I had. And once I did that, I took that and I snail mailed it to the offices of a lot of big places like Hockey News, The New York Times, uh, ESPN. And in the case of ESPN, it turned out the guy, I didn't know this was the case, it was just a coincidence. The guy who I mailed it to just so happened to be that one TV interview that he that had interviewed him when he had gotten out of prison. Like, like lo and behold, like, you know, what are the chances of that, oh, right? Wow. So, like, so he was, like, really impressed by it and had said, like, yeah, if you can get stuff that's a little bit different like that, like, yeah, like, I'm open to pitches. So going into that 2015-16 season is those were the types of things that I went for. And I'm trying to think some examples. I interviewed uh, Mike Keenan uh, right after he left the KHL. And it was why he left the KHL, which was kind of an interesting one with a figure that wasn't necessarily on some people's radar, but obviously is a massive name in the league that had a really interesting story to tell. I had a similar one about uh, with Sean Avery about some stuff he was doing right after his playing career. And a lot of these guys, they were great. I mean, they, like, they were great interviews. I got really lucky that way. Is Actually, not every person I interviewed was a great interview, but those couple that I mentioned, they were really great interviews. And by doing a lot of those things, it uh, kind of created my, it kind of raised my profile a little bit where it stands out when it's Dan Mraz interview with Mike Keenan, Dan Mraz interview with Sean Avery. And it started to create that image, maybe that I was a little bit, more important than I was, maybe. I mean, I'll take it, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> so one of the assignments that I did is, like I said, going back to uh, how this resulted in me getting a job was I had identified that I wanted to be at the opening of T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. The, uh, the, the They didn't have a team yet, and it was going to be a console. It was Wayne Newton and the Killers. It was the Killers with Wayne Newton opening. And I figured that no hockey media is going to be out there, but it's so heavily rumored that we're going to get the team that you can get flights to Vegas super cheap. Uh, I mean, as long as you're not doing the uh, the, the local uh, the local fare, so to speak, is that I can get a super cheap flight. I can probably get access to this, and this could be another kind of feather in my cap of things. So I did it. It was actually the first time I ever went to Las Vegas, and uh, I actually met some of the some of the people that were like relatively involved with the team. You know, didn't really think of like didn't really think of it. But what ended up happening was I got back, uh, got back to my parents' basement a couple weeks later, oh, the next week, and showed all my pictures from Las Vegas on Facebook. And I had a guy who I had reconnected with the previous year, who was a AHL broadcaster. And you know, we we started to just kind of like you know fantasize what would it be like if we both could get in the NHL and Vegas is going to have to have openings. Like, wouldn't it be something if? Uh, Vegas opens, gets a team, and then we could both maybe get openings. 
So we probably used to, you know, kind of chat about that maybe once a week, you know, that spring. And, you know, I was trying to help him with some stuff he was working on too. And then I'll never forget it. On a Saturday night, right on Memorial Day weekend in the United States, that you, he sends me a Facebook message. Like I said, it's all Facebook private messages. This is not the job applicants applications that a lot of people think. And he was like, so do you want to work for the team in Vegas? And I'm like, ha ha, what team? Like rhetorical question, right? So he goes, can you send me your resume and trust me? You know, that's not cryptic. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm, you know, so I, I sent him, I sent him my resume. Uh, I don't know what's going on. And what it turned out had happened was his boss in the AHL had actually gotten hired by Vegas. <laughs> Wow. I mean, the chances of that was so small, so small. And uh, and obviously, they weren't in a position to really advertise heavily for jobs because it would have broken the news that they were more than likely going to get a team at that point. So, uh, yeah, about a week and a half later, the guy called me. I mean, he didn't even email, email me to set up a point. He just called me. Uh, I was sitting on a, on a couch in a bathroom on a Monday afternoon, you know, nowhere to go. And uh, within 30 seconds, I understood that this guy was the guy who was employed by the Vegas team. I had a connection to him. And, oh, wait, I'm interviewing for the job right now. I had about 30 seconds for that to, to, to register in my head, which I don't know how it did. But it went pretty well, and they obviously had to move pretty quickly. With the, uh, It was only three weeks before the decision was going to come down that the uh, whether they were going to get a team or not. And four days later, they gave me an offer. Went really fast. Uh, I was out there 10 days later living in, they flew me out there. I was in temporary housing for the first couple months before I could, you know, fully move. I got there on a Sunday and on Wednesday, uh, the NHL gave the franchise. So that's the epitome of whirlwind. And so it turned out, you know, some of those going around and doing assignments that way. And I guess in the process, trying to help other people kind of luckily, maybe kind of got like kind of what go what what went around came around so to speak and that was what led to me going to uh vegas which like i said then vegas became everything that it became which kind of really kind of cemented my career a little bit so it's lots of uh good luck i would say but the way i always like as i learned is is that in the long run is yeah i'll be the first one to say i got really lucky but there's always a there's a thousand other times when i didn't get lucky and I think the thing that I kind of learned is, is that eventually, if you learn how to practice good habits, which probably took me about 10 years to practice good habits, is but once you start practicing good habits, percentages start to go to your, into your favor, where maybe something will go, unluck, go unlucky against you. But if you keep doing it and keep doing it, you put yourself in a, in a good position to have success. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And it did seem like you put yourself in a great position to get those bounces to go your way. Yeah, so, I never thought of bounces. Like, you know, like whenever players say we got the bounces, I got the bounces. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? And I played a full 60 minutes. I played a full 60 minutes, I got the bounces, and I uh, and I got pucks deep. Yeah, you got pucks in deep. Yeah, exactly. Little hockey turns there. But before we go into DraftKings, you might maybe, maybe touch on what it was like working for an expansion franchise, and then what made you make the switch to DraftKings? Sure, after? yeah. So... Yeah, so that was the with the an expansion franchise. I think one of the things that people do notice is that it's a brand new hockey team. And the thing that I think people don't necessarily realize to the same degree is that it's a startup business, and it's like it's a startup. So from that aspect, like I said, when I got there, there were only like seven employees, and I was the only person in web, social, digital communications of any kind, and and it stayed that way for the first. Uh, 
six months or so until the head of public relations was hired. And then there wasn't really anybody else on the digital side hired for like another five or six months after that even. So from that aspect, it was really wearing a lot of hats. It was also, uh, and this is the case, I think, in any startup and I think anybody who is in a startup uh, that is like legitimately in the early expansion stage stages of it, expansion being growing as a company, is there's lots of total over, is I always used to say, the amount of things that happen in most places in a, in a year happen in a month for us. The things that take place in a month somewhere else take place like in a day for us. And that's how quickly things move. And for me, uh, within that, those, those like at being, being on the front lines, there's so many things that I got exposed to that I maybe would not have been exposed to with any other franchise. Like for example, uh, when it came to developing the Golden Knights brand, which wasn't only the social brand, which, uh, you know, kind of quirky, but very Vegas, it was the same, same brand that has been kind of adopted in the pregame shows, uh, the medieval times pregame shows. It was kind of like that organizational brand. And I'd be lying if I would, if I said I was the one who uh, decided what the brand was. That, I mean, that was, that's above my pay grade, but I was in the room, you know, I was in the room when it happened and, uh, and, and part of those conversations, you know, and just kind of like seeing what was what, and just to be able to be in a room with an owner, a general manager, if I was with another team, I probably would not have gotten to work directly with an owner, a general manager, uh, at that age that I was at, I would say there's so many other weird little things that stand out to me that you would not experience somewhere else. I remember a Saturday morning in July, a couple of weeks after I got there, I got up at five o'clock in the morning and I took an Uber. I think, I think it was an Uber. I don't know how I got one at five o'clock in the morning is, uh, I, and, and I went down to team over arena. They were going to install the ice for the first time. I was the only person other than the ice crew. I think I was the only person in the building and it was legitimately watching the ice go into an NHL building for the first time. Uh, yeah. there was another one that, uh, same way is I remember sitting in a nightclub in T-Mobile Arena that November, and I was pressing the button that was officially announcing the team was going to be named the Vegas Golden Knights. I mean, that's like, you know, these are things, like, I was even thinking then, like, I can't imagine who was the person that sent out the memo that the Montreal Canadiens were the Montreal Canadiens back in 1909, or the person that was the the New York Rangers or the New York Rangers in 1926. And here I was sitting in Las Vegas of all places and doing these things. And so many landmarks like that, like putting out the first contract in the history of the team. It was a Tuesday in a cubicle. I mean, you're sitting on a Tuesday in a cubicle, but you're announcing the first transaction in the history of a team, you know? I mean, even with the expansion draft, I'll never forget uh, the uh, – a fellow that was interning in our department under me, uh, we, uh, it was actually that night the Reebok had debuted the new, had re, uh, debuted the new uniforms and we got back to the office about seven o'clock and the expansion draft was the next day. And all of a sudden we got a little bit of a heads up, like this isn't public yet. You've signed all the NDAs, but here's the, here's the stuff. Let's start getting some content ready for tomorrow. And there's so many things like that, that, the world eventually got to see and got to notice. Like even here's another one even is uh, during the expansion draft. It's like a full day stretch where the, uh, the teams had the Sunday by Sunday to give the list. And then the draft itself was on Wednesday. And for those four days or so, the list were public. I remember during those four days, 
uh, in the office. I, it was lunchtime, and one of the guys from Hockey Ops had come down, and I think I was the only one in the room. I think everybody else was at lunch. And he said, can you come with me? And I'm like, this is a little different. And he brings me into the war room. Like, the war room is, like, you know, where all the draft lists are and everything. And I walk in, and it was almost like a tribunal where it was the uh, – it was every person in hockey ops. Knew. It was a very serious setting. Um, and I felt like I was a kid called into the principal's office. But it turned out what had happened was they had officially filed the paperwork on the first player being taken. And they needed somebody to take a picture of the contract for history. There's so wow. many things like that that I got to experience that were really like two. Like I was there for two years it was about a million once in a lifetime type of experiences that way. And then even going into the season two, uh, the amount of things I, I, some people have joked with me that I should donate my, the camera on my iPhone to the hockey hall of fame sometimes with some <laughs> of the things that are on there. So for me, I think when you kind of mentioned the decision to kind of come here, and I think this is one of the things I've seen from a lot of young people in this industry is, is that sometimes the ability it's tough enough to get in, but then the ability to move up sometimes can be a little bit difficult too. And in some organizations, the role to move up isn't necessarily even there, so to speak. So I've seen so many folks that are in my age bracket have broken into the industry when they're 23, 24, 25 years old, and then they're 30, 31, and they're still sitting in the same exact spot. They're sitting in the same exact spot. There's really nothing on the horizon of moving up because they haven't really gotten the chance to do anything more expanded if something did open that was a little bit more expanded they might not even be in a position to get it depending on where it is because they haven't gotten those experiences and for me i think the other part of it that kind of went into it too was mentioning that that started up aspect of it was the uh the person who had hired me wasn't there anymore uh another guy who was a c-level executive who i worked really closely with wasn't there anymore and uh so based on that was a lot of changes were starting to happen too and i saw that i needed to get these skills as somebody who was moving into the 30s to uh to get those or, or forever be stalled where i was so uh i jumped on the opportunity at that point uh i had had several places that had actually been trying to recruit me which was nice all the years i was struggling to get jobs it was nice to have somebody come come my way and do it the other way around uh you know and DraftKings had came my way i didn't really know anybody here but they uh they really impressed me like i like i mean never hoots to take a call they always say and took the calls and every time i talked to them i was more and more impressed and based on that that made the decision uh a lot easier to do that so that was lo and behold the that that so so circuitous so way. I don't even know if that's a word. That circuitous so way that I ended up uh, that I ended up at DraftKings and getting all those experiences. And I and like I said, it's been great. It's got it's been exactly as I planned. All the experiences that I was trying to get, uh, I've been, I've been getting and I'm continuing to get. So it's been great. Yeah, you, you really touched on so many different things. I'm sure it can help so many people listening. Whether it's just kind of finding new ways and different ways to connect with people and trying to move up from there. Or even trying to make the most of your different opportunities. So yeah. that was all. And, and at that point, not to cut you off, is there's so many things that like I was always working on skills, but it turned out things that actually made the the break for me was somebody who I was like nice to that I didn't think was really important, and then a year or two later, that person turned out to be incredibly important. And I guess yeah. the lesson I've kind of learned even now is is that 
you know, growing up, your parents always tell you, be nice, be a good person. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there that that's not enough of an incentive. <laughs> that's the nicest way I could say that. But the thing that I kind of learned is, even if you don't care about other humans, which some people don't, being nice helps you. Like, it, it helps you. Definitely. Even if you are selfish, even if you don't care about people, being good to people is still the move because it helps you. And it's something that requires no skill, no college education, being kind, being helpful where you can, being enthusiastic. And it turned out some of those things were the things that actually turned my luck, which to me, like, you know, like, Lo and behold, the million dollar uh, the million dollar answer was sitting under my nose the whole time, and it was just to be nice to people, and eventually it would work out. Yeah, I don't think I could have said it any better myself. And maybe just to wrap things up, do you have any additional advice that you'd like to give? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I would say a couple things. I would say one of them is is uh, don't take things personally when they don't work out. I think that's something that. I'll be the first one to say that I haven't always been the best at doing that. I, you know, but you know, we're the perfect people. We do the best we can. Uh, as mentioned, these jobs are very few and far between. I mean, on the subject of NHL social, I mean, there's probably five to seven at the most jobs open in the whole league a year, and that would be a good year. Beyond uh, more of the entry mid level, more like once you get to like be director level, vice president level you're lucky if one of them opens a year. So the thing is, based on that, and then who? there's a lot of applicants also. So you get hundreds of applicants, especially for some of the the, uh, the early spots. So the thing is, um, you know, I'm going to quote Talladega Nights, which I can't believe. It really is a case is if you're not first, you're last. Is you can come <laughs> second, or you can come in 500th, and you still didn't get the job. So the thing is, you can be a very good candidate and still miss 15 jobs in a row. And it's not necessarily because you did something wrong or because the place didn't like you. It's because legitimately they had 500 applicants, 700 applicants, and they had to pick one. So really, do not take it personally. Uh, as much as humanly possible. I would say the other thing is do not operate as if job boards are going to be the primary way that you're going to find employment. And the reason for that is, is I'm going to quote another movie. I can't help myself. I'm going to quote Miracle this time is the Herb Brooks line. You can't, we can't be a team of common men because common men go nowhere. And the fact is the common, the common person is looking on job boards. That's where they're looking. So if you want to be first out of 500, you going up against 500 people the same exact way is not really going to be a high percentage play. The other thing that I've learned is that more so than skills, one of the really things that is incredibly important, and I've been on both sides of this now, is that somebody who is trustworthy, coachable, and enthusiastic, more often than not will take precedent and can take president over pure skill set. And based on that, it's very hard for you to develop those things by applying to a job posting that just went up. Like you never developed any trust with the place. So the thing is, is it really does drive home that importance of networking. And to me, networking is, it's not about emailing somebody and say, can you give me a job? That's going to be a turn off for most people. It's more going to be, you reach out and say, and ask for advice and look at it as you're getting advice, but you're also building a relationship and you're not asking them for a job today or tomorrow. But if you develop a relationship for two, three, four, five months, if not maybe even longer, 
all of a sudden a job opens there and then you have somebody that you can directly email or maybe a job opens with another team and this person knows someone there and makes that introduction that way well when it comes to developing that trust yeah you can do it by networking yourself but it's also by it's a small industry and if somebody with one team really values the opinion of another person they're more than likely going to ask them if they have somebody for that job and if you impress the first person, they're going to introduce you to the second person, and it's automatically going to qualify you to the uh, to the second person as being trustworthy. So to me, it is kind of like uh, like I always say is like if you wait for the job posting to be in contact with the place, it's almost too late at that point. It's almost like you need to plant the seeds early and wait for the uh, the flowers to blossom and do that ahead of time. I would say also when you do this, look at it as it's not about your batting average. It's about your number of hits. I would much rather go five for 20 than one for two because five is more than one. And you will find as you do do this, even if you do this the exact right way, I'll, probably the majority of people are not going to answer you. Uh, that's a, my, my feelings on that are a subject for another day. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of people are not going to answer you. Uh, also, some people won't answer you and it might not necessarily be in the most detail, which is fine. And to be fair, people in this industry work a lot of hours. My screen time on my phone is probably average of like 13 hours a day. It's so like people are really busy. So sometimes if they answer what you think is not substantially, they really are doing the rest there. And then you will get some other people that do answer a little bit more substantially. But the only way you're going to find the people that answer you more substantially are by taking more shots that way of networking. So really look at it as... Uh, it's not about your batting average. It's about your number of hits. If somebody doesn't answer you, it doesn't give you a job. It's about, uh, it's not, don't take it personally. And then lastly, uh, one of the things is, and this is a really big thing, is that if something doesn't go your way, this is an opportunity for you to show class. Because unfortunately, a lot of people, they try to show their best foot. They try to put their best foot forward when they're trying to impress somebody. You would tell them what they want to hear. And then they get a rejection and they get a little nasty. Or you never hear from them again or whatever the case may be. That, But the industry is so small and you run into the same people over and over again that if you're in a moment of quote unquote weakness and you exhibit what would qualify as exceptional grace and class, these are things that really make impressions on people. What I mean by that is it could be sending a actual letter, a thank you note to people that you interview after you did not get the job even. It's, th it's being, it's being humble. It's, it's, it's being, it's being that way. It's being a way that is so gracious that it sticks in someone's mind that way. And all of those traits, as much as skills, I would say really develop it. I would say the last bit of advice that I would, I would crunch into there is to really be cognizant of your own personal social media channels. I think that what goes on your social media channels impacts you more, as much, if not more, than your resume does. I think I'm not the first person to say that. I think you know the common ones people would always say is, "Don't, don't talk about religion, politics." You know the old standbys. But to me personally, I think the opportunity is even a little bit more than that. Yeah, those these things, those those things that you 100% don't touch because you're in the you in the position of branding yourself, but you really are in the business of branding yourself. So instead of being the type of person that just you see big news and you quote tweet it with the word wow, which don't don't even get me started on that one, is that you actually <laughs> develop a plan of what of what traits you want to present on your personal social media. Well whether this is 
knowledge and, and like so like in my case i do this now and i'm and i've been in the industry for 16 years so for me on my personal social uh just to kind of articulate how that could work i tweet uh i try to keep it very positive and never negative i try to find people that have done good work in the industry and try to highlight that uh again be, being gracious never goes out of style i think also when you're doing this you kind of indirectly almost become a little bit of an authority on the subject when you kind of share your two cents on it when you are somebody who kind of is qualified to do so. I think for me, I tweet a lot of random sports trivia. Uh, like, like I said, all those years that I uh, wasn't working and didn't really have money, I read a lot of hockey books, I'll tell you that. Is uh, So I'll tweet a lot of those, and I try to keep it a little bit more anecdotal than stat-based. Uh, I have weird stories. Like, for example, today I tweeted that uh, on this date 103 years ago, the Seattle Metropolitans became the first American team to win the Stanley Cup. The final game, they beat the Montreal Canadiens, was actually the most lopsided playoff loss in the history of the Montreal Canadiens. Seattle beat them 9-1. to one. And all these years later, asked the question, who was the most lopsided defeat in the history of the uh, Montreal Canadiens in the playoffs? It's the Seattle Metropolitans. Not many people get that one. So I'll tweet like random trivia, things like that. And then and all of those are just show... Uh, graciousness knowledge of the of, of the subject matter but also knowledge of the sport itself and then i also just want to show a little bit of my personality in a way that is memorable but you know relatively non-controversial so i tweet a lot of dad jokes i'm not a dad but i, I love i love dad jokes i mean if the worst thing somebody could ever say about me is man his dad jokes are lame which i know people have said that i mean i'm in a relatively good spot and and then the other one with me which i kind of developed from all these years in hockey as like a hobby so to speak is i think a lot of people who have never been in the ahr or the nhl think that when you travel you're out drinking every night and you're going to fancy places and you're going to museums the fact is you're busy when you're in most of these cities you don't have time to do that you really don't i mean you're in most cities for 36 hours at the most as it is so for me one of the things that i developed was i love movies i love history is that every city i go to i try to know what locations were there. Hi, I'm in Minnesota. That's where Emilio Estevez drove the limo on the ice and Mighty Ducks. Or, hey, I'm in Vancouver. There was Happy Gilmore's grandma's house. And I'll just hop in an Uber, hop in a cab, go by the spots, take some pictures, take some video, and, and then get back in a half an hour. <laughs> and, you know, and I've probably done about 200 of those locations. I mean, I've been in been to the Sandlot. I've been in the I've been in the jail from Shawshank Redemption. I mean, I've been all over the place, and I share a lot of those on my social because it's a it's a it's a it's a unique hobby, and it's something that stands out a little bit too. And it's funny. I've had people that I've met for the first time who follow me on social, but I've never met them, and they're like, "Oh, you're the movie location guy." <laughs> so you know, so for me, like, yeah, those aren't the only four subjects that I stick to, but. I try to have the majority of my stuff in that direction because, you know, I'm trying, it's, it's in my, in my case, it's like, it's the image that I'm building the, you're building a brand, you're networking on this platform. But in your case, or in anyone's case, who's breaking into the industry, connecting with people on social is of the utmost importance. And if you were able to kind of control your brand, so to speak, a little bit that way, you really put yourself in a position to make a good impression on a lot of people in a relatively short time and, in, and on, on reverse people who don't do that can make a really bad impression in a really short time on a lot of people in the industry. So being mindful of all those things, I would say would be the, uh, as I told you, the long answer version of uh, some, some advice that I would give. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree with more with all that advice, especially the personal branding stuff is exactly what I'm trying to do with the podcast and my various social media platforms and SMNO marketing. But 
totally so like, much for oh, that's like you building connections that way like even like you and me i didn't really know you before yeah, this. now exactly. you and me know each other you know so it's like even that aspect it's great networking yeah yeah i appreciate it so much and thank you for all the different nuggets and things we could take away there's so much i'm sure people are going to learn from this so thanks for joining us so that's the end of the recording with uh with dan sorry about the abrupt ending we end up getting in a conversation that that was meant for um off the record i guess you can say so that's why it was kind of cut off a little short but i just want to thank dan again for taking the time to you know come on and share all of his experiences and stories because you know he really did take a, a good chunk of his schedule out and even uh after recording you know we spent a few uh i think over maybe a couple hours even just speaking and he's even providing me with uh, additional advice so this episode may be a bit longer than the ones that have been released previously but i think there's a good chunk of things that have been um shared throughout this episode that was worth the additional time so i I won't say too much longer other than if you want to stay up to date with what's going on the podcast and who our next guests are follow me on social media at nesimento marketing so n-e-s-c-i-m-e-n-t-o-m-k-t-g on twitter or instagram it'll also be in the episode notes and uh, that's all i'll leave it at today so thanks for listening and i hope you guys enjoyed (laughs) 